Hello, and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast. October 14th, Herschel Gordon Lewis. Hello, everyone. So, October 14th is finally here. Yesterday, we talked about the works of well, the Apocalypse Trilogy from John Carpenter. Today, we're going to be talking about a, a lesser-known but still fairly influential director of indie horror films. We're going to be talking about a Mr. Herschel Gordon Lewis. Now, I'm not going to go too heavily into his biography. Just know that if you're a fan of John Waters, you should probably know about him. The movies are very different in uh, content, usually, but they have, at least from what I've seen, a fairly similar tone. It's very derisive and irreverent black comedy a lot of the times. And both of them just love like pushing the bounds of good taste for a lot of their earlier stuff. Lewis, however, has a different claim to, I guess in a way, cinematic infamy. Is that he is one of two directors, the other being Lucio Fulci, who we'll be talking about near the end of the month. Who have the title of The Godfather of Gore. Now personally, I'd rather give that to Lewis. I love Fulci, but Lewis was doing this a long time before Fulci was or at least to the same degree that Fulci was. So, it was a, you know, rather, as one critic on a Video Nasties documentary said, Herschel Gordon Lewis is a very clever and intelligent man, although his movies are not the best way to <laughs> get an idea of that. He worked, as ad- he worked in advertising for a little bit, and... He also had a job as an English professor at Mississippi State College. And one day he decided he just wanted to like get into filmmaking. He um, was inspired because by seeing, you know, the movie Psycho had just come out when he started doing this. And he wanted to give and that kind of inspired him to hack it in the music in music. Sorry, in the movie business. I'm sorry, I just got music on the mind right now. And for first couple years of his career in this, he made um, what were called what were called at the time nudie cuties, which were basically just you know softcore porn films. But he also did a um, sort of drama crime movie called Scum of the Earth, and eventually he had a conversation with his producer David Friedman. And, you know, he wanted to do something new to try and make a name for himself. And, you know, what can we do that hasn't been done before, he said. And, well, gore was one of them. See, the thing is, movies up to this point, at least, you know, above-ground stuff that actually got released, um, usually when people were killed, they were just sort of, like, hit over the head or... they had been shot, they'd just like clutch their chest and maybe there'd be a little trickle of blood or something like that. But usually they would just like fall on the floor, close their eyes, and that would be the end of it. Not so. Not so with these movies. Um Yeah, I'm I'm not gonna make it sound like a lot of like his movies are great, because they're really kind of trashy a lot of the times and the budgets they really do show. But you know, he's also made some sort of like comedic uh, 
crime movies as well, but we're going to be talking about five of his more uh, famous gore horror films because that is primarily what he's known for. Um, the first one we're going to be talking about was is going to be Blood Feast, which was actually banned in the UK for a while, and some of these, I think, in some of the Commonwealth countries around the world are actually still banned to this day, or at least they never got official releases. But, you know, the, the gore effects in his movies were not great. You can tell pretty easily that they're just, like, hacked-off mannequin limbs that just have awful and just stuff from, like, butcher shop reject. Like, the reject bin in the butcher shop is just stuffed into them. But I love how one other reviewer summed it up is just the fact that the gore effects in his movies, they have this weird effect where, and personally, I don't know if it's just the... I don't know if it's just the shittiness of the effects or the fact that these movies are all from, like, 1963 to 1972, so they're all in, like, really vibrant Technicolor. So they already look a little stylized. But they're both completely unconvincing to the point where they're actually kind of gross. (laughs) Like, everything's just kind of, like... It's so... I wouldn't say they're so bad they're good, but they're kind of disgusting to look at just because they're kind of shitty effects to look at. And, you know, the this is probably going to be a really front-heavy episode just because the movies don't have much to them. It's more just, like, the general themes going here. Um, I was actually kind of surprised when I found out that some of them had, like, a following to the point where uh, some most of the ones we're talking about today actually got remakes relatively recently. Um, and some of them had, like I mentioned, John Waters is a big fan of uh, Lewis, Mr. Lewis's films. Apparently, he wrote in his book Bad Taste that he fell in love with Lewis as a filmmaker because he went to see one of his movies at a drive-in. <laughs> and he saw people jump out of their cars to go you know, throw up in the bushes, he said, at last I found a filmmaker after my own heart. <laughs> Which, yeah, I've I've seen some of John Waters' earlier stuff. I understand where he gets that from. <laughs> but, you know. Um, regarding Blood Feast, which is the first one we're going to be talking about today, it's probably his most infamous one. First of the Blood Trilogy. While I resent his comparison, because I love Walt Whitman poetry, but he did say to one interview that he compared Blood Feast to a Walt Whitman poem. In his words, it's no good, but it was the first of its kind. And, yeah, like, as I said, I love Walt Whitman, but that's otherwise a good comparison. Blood Feast is a shitty movie, but it's still fun to watch just because it is so bad. But, you know, there's not much you can really say to its merits as a great movie, other than the fact that from the little seed, we've had a massive tree full of far more, like, gory and extreme cinema. I don't know if we would have a lot of, like, I mean, you know, there was the spaghetti westerns as well, but who knows how many, like, really, you know, gory, violent movie effects, for better or worse, would we have if we didn't have Blood Feast. So, moving into the actual movies themselves, 
And the best part about them is that you get the feeling that Lewis is kind of laughing up his sleeve behind the camera because the more extreme these movies get, especially when we get to the last one we're going to be talking about today, they get more and more like comedic as they also get more and more grisly. And, you know, like I said, there's none of the just clutch your chest and fall over kind of cinema death in these movies. Like Blood Feast, we see like one girl gets her head staved in with a club. One basically just uh, Fuad Ramses, who's the killer in it, he basically just like rips her tongue out. She just kind of gags on her blood. And... Ugh, yeah, and it, you get to some of the ones in the Gorgor Girls, which is the last one on the list today, and it was actually his last for like 30 years because that was meant to be his retirement. Like, you get these death scenes where, you know, sometimes the whole death and then the mutilation afterwards hap- goes on for like three minutes, which is kind of insane for like in terms of screen time. But Blood Feast... We follow the story of Fuad Ramses, as I mentioned, who's this kind of, like, cracked-out-looking guy running a catering service. And he's going around uh, killing women, collecting their body parts to prepare some kind of blood ritual to uh, the goddess Ishtar, who, contrary to the movie's claims, is not an Egyptian goddess. Not even a little bit. Yeah, and as a history major, that particular line is so inaccurate that it actually kind of hurts to listen to, but it has all the great hallmarks of a Herschel Gordon Lewis film. It's filmed in a handful of locations to keep the price down. The gore effects are impressive, even if they're not convincing at all. And you have acting that ranges from completely wooden to utterly utterly fucking hysterical. (laughs) Like, everyone here is either reading off a cue card or they are, like, at kabuki levels of exaggeration. Um, I do also want to say this, though. It's often falsely cited, I should mention, as the first movie to show a person die with their eyes remaining open. There was a movie called The Public Enemy in the 30s that did that, and I'm pretty sure it happened at least once in Psycho. Um... But yeah, it's just, it's really weird, (laughs) especially considering it's the 60s and you see all these, like, women walking around with, like, Jetson hairdos. Um, Like I said, this was one of the 72 movies banned in the UK during the Video Nasties uh, little craze going on in the 80s. But, you know, it's notable because it's the first real, like, splatter film like the ones that have a heavy focus on showing like really gory murders. And it also kind of helped that Lewis did a fair amount of publicity stunts, kind of like William Castle before and after him. Like he handed out vomit bags at a lot of the screenings, uh, really proudly displayed them. He even had like a friend of his that no one knew that a lot of people didn't know was connected to him go down to Saratosa in Florida and, like, try to lobby to get an injunction against the film being screened in the town in the hopes that it would get more press, and then that, and then it would feed that cycle of more press equals more business equals more press. 
So, yeah, he did that, which is also kind of funny because there was another movie on the band list that did the same thing. Like, they hired people to go and, like, protest at, like, the movie screenings, which ended up being so effective that it actually attracted actual protesters. But, you know. Um, aside from Wizard of Gore, I should mention on these list, all of these are, like, sub-90 minute mark. So, they're worth a good watch. Uh, the only thing is that they are, as far as I know, all on Tubi, so that won't take ads into account. But if you can, if you have Tubi and you don't mind watching these movies, go, like, go give them all a watch. Um, and if you watch them in the order that I'm talking about, you can definitely see, like, the, both the gore effects and the sort of, you know, jocular comedic quality kind of ramp up over time. And then you get to the gore gore girls and it just... It just fucking crescendos because that was meant to be his retirement. So, yeah, and this begins the so-called blood trilogy that a lot of his fans call it because it's his first three, like, gore films. Next one up is Color Me Blood Red, which I will be honest, I still like it, but it's my least favorite of the five on here. So, kind of in the... um tradition of, you know, the House of Wax or actually the movie uh, Bucket of Blood that came out a few years prior. And even some short stories, as far as I know, going back to the 1890s, this continues the whole stock of the mad artist killing his models. In this case, it's an unstable painter named Adam Sorg. He's kind of in a creative rut. He's got this really snobby critic that's kind of looking down his nose at him. He's got a gallery owner who's getting on his case about, you know, not selling his paintings or not being able to sell his paintings. And one day after accidentally nicking himself, he uses the he notices how like vibrant the blood that he accidentally spills is when it's used on the painting. And well, he, well, he say with me now starts killing people and using their blood as the paintings, and what do you know, everyone loves the paintings now. As a matter of fact, someone offers to buy one of them for 15 grand, which is a lot in 1964 money. But, you know, he does this repeatedly, and everyone loves the new works, but it doesn't help that he's becoming even more volatile and high-strung, so he's trying to, like, you know, it's it's no substitute for artistic inspiration, let's just say that. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm starting to wonder if stuff like this is why the myth of the snuff film has persisted so long. And when if anyone out there doesn't hasn't heard that term or hasn't heard it explained, a snuff film is the idea that there is a commercially produced movie that actually shows real homicide or maybe a suicide as well. Um... But the thing is, as far as we, everyone's been able to tell, there's been no commercially produced snuff film, despite a lot of people's, despite all the urban legends about them. Now, obviously, that doesn't include things like martyrdom videos or execution videos, um, you know, serial killers filming their ex. It doesn't include stuff like that. 
it just refers to stuff like this that's commercially produced, which obviously never happens, as far as anyone can tell. But I wonder if like movies like this contribute to that idea. Because there's been, um, like I said, at least since, since the 1890s, there's been you know, short stories about uh, newspaper reporters like staging, killing people and staging the bodies to make it look like something new. There's been House of Wax where it's a sculptor just encasing people in wax, something similar with Bucket of Blood. And now you have, you know, the painter using blood for the painting. I wonder if it's just because we've had that idea of actual death in media so long in terms of fictional stories that I guess a lot of people just assumed, oh, well, stuff like this might actually have happened. And if it actually happened, well, logically the next step would be, you know, movies. And there's been plenty of cases where people have, you know, mistaken something for a snuff film. I remember there was one case where uh, Nine Inch Nails was filming a music video and the little balloon that they had the camera attached to floated off and landed some farm in the next state, which got the FBI on their ass because they thought they just released released a video with someone actually killing themselves when it wasn't, in fact, the case. I know there was at least one case of Charlie Sheen calling the FBI because he thought that the you know, the guinea pig films. He watched one of them and thought it was a snuff film. It wasn't, although those movies are fucking despicable enough to begin with. But, you know, it's... But, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting little ride. It's only, like, an hour 15, so it's... it, It doesn't have as much going on as all of his other films. It's a little tedious compared to the others, but it's not terrible. It serves as a nice midpoint for the so-called Blood Trilogy. The next one is 2000 Maniacs. Now, the basic understanding here is that there is a little town called Pleasant Valley, Georgia, and there's three groups of people. Uh, Two different couples and one guy who's passing through and pitched picked up a hitchhiker nearby and they end up passing through this small town in Georgia and it's on the centennial and they're sort of welcomed as guests and you know they kind of firmly but politely insist that they stay for the event the townspeople I mean they insist that they stay but as it goes on they just end up getting harassed and eventually you know killed off one by one by the townsfolk, and we find out that the reason they're doing this is a sort of, you know, cathartic revenge for the town's destruction during the Civil War. It is the centennial, after all. But as it turns out, the centennial of the town's destruction, not of its founding. Or or I guess of its refounding. I could have just been the rebuilding. But aside... And it's definitely a case of, like, the... what's called a hicksploitation where it's basically an exploitation film, but it's set against the backdrop of the American South. There's got you know, the wilderness to contend with, and you've got usually, I will admit, very heavily caricatured Southerners. You know, it's it's the redneck cliche. And everyone involved just plays it to the hilt, which is really impressive, especially given the fact that 
aside from the tourists and the mayor, most of the people in the town were actual locals of a little town in Florida called St. Cloud. And I remember reading something about it. It's kind of funny, the idea that there's just these, you know, there's this one set piece where there's this, you know, really gorgeous blonde lady who's being tied down. They're about to drop a boulder on her. And there's just these, like, little old ladies from the near, it's from the <laughs> town and the neighboring towns. There's like, what the, and they're just sort of, you know, smiling and cheering on with it. And they're just sort of mumbling to each other, like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> I always wonder about stuff like that, like people who are just in a local area and they get, you know, offered like, you know, hundred bucks to just come down and be in the background, just be window dressing for the day. And they're just seeing the weird scenes in the movie play out and they're like, they have no idea what's going on. It's always got to be a fun experience. But, you know, as I said Lewis was a big influence on John Waters, and in fact, uh, Waters' movie Multiple Maniacs is actually a reference to the title here. Um, there was an there was an alt rock band in the UK called Ten Thousand Maniacs that was a reference to this as well. There was a both a remake and a sequel to that remake, and the remake sequel was uh, called Two Thousand One Maniacs, which I kind of thought was hilarious. Uh. Skipping forward a few years to, I believe, 1970, we have Wizard of Gore. And, yeah, this was where you could really tell the degree of the gore was really stepped up. Uh, and, honestly, it did actually improve quality-wise, at least I think, with these last two movies. So, Wizard of Gore, we have um, a performing magician named Montag the Magnificent, and he's carrying out these bizarre, gruesome acts on stage. Like, you know, he does the whole... He does the whole, um, you know, sawing a person in half thing. But the thing that he uses as a gimmick is that, you know, he wheels out this, like, flat table and has, you know, a lady from the audience come up and lay down on it. And he goes out back for a second. He comes back. He's got a fucking chainsaw. <laughs> and he just looks at the audience after starting up. He's like... Well, what? What? You thought I was going to use an old handsaw? A big box? No, no. There's no tricks here. He just starts it up, and the thing is, what happens with all of these tricks that he does is that we as the audience see just these horrid wounds get inflicted. Like, you know, he cuts a lady in half with a chainsaw. He Later on, he drives like a metal spike through one of their heads. It's like, I don't just mean like a needle. It's like a fucking like railroad spike if you ever live near a railroad or anything like that. You know what I mean, but, you know. And they're fine. They seem to be fine. We see injuries, but it, they walk it off like it's nothing. And there's not even a sign that they've been injured, which is the whole cool part of the act. But it cuts to later, and you just see them. Like There's one lady just walks into a restaurant, Sits, sits down at the bar, and the next shot we see is just a reaction shot of some other lady screaming, and she just, like, flops onto the floor and, like, her guts spill out. So that's the whole, like, impetus of the story. You've got this news anchor, you've got her fiancé, and you've got that fiancé's uh, friend from the newspaper all trying to figure out what the hell is going on here. Because, you know, 
Because it's weird for a magi- for a magician to do these weird tricks on stage and then have people just fall over and die in ways similar to what was going on on stage when they seemed to not be in any harm. Uh, Montag is like the guy playing him, you know, kudos to him. Cause he's, <laughs> he has that Fuad Ramsey's quality. He's completely fucking bizarre and weird. And he's so like, obviously a psychopath that, that it almost becomes funny that no one else seems to notice it in universe until like, a little more than midway through the movie. And finally, we have what was probably Lewis's most gruesome and most satirical film of them all, is The Gorgor Girls. Uh, released in 1972, was his final film for almost 30 years until 2002, where he did a sequel to Blood Feast. And what we have here is there's this team-up between a novice reporter, a local paper, and she enlists the help of this guy, Abraham Gentry. He is this just obnoxious and smug private eye, and the whole point is to investigate the murders of a number of go-go dancers. It's meant as a sort of reflective self-parody of Lewis's like previous films. It's, as I've said, it's the most satirical, it's the silliest, but it's also the bloodiest and goriest. And some of the effects are just fucking, like, weird. Especially some of the kill scenes, because there's this one where, like, this lady is just... Like, her throat gets cut just enough that she's kind of, like, stunned. And then... (laughs) And then the killer just starts hitting her on the ass with, like, a tenderizer mallet. Until... And I'm sorry for this image, but this was my brother... This was my little brother watching this movie, so you can blame him for this mental image. And I quote, her ass cheeks turned into red velvet cake. (laughs) If I have to be cursed with that mental image, so do you. I'm sorry. But (laughs) it is worth noting, though, that this did have the most contemporary good press of any uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis movie. Um. Although, especially considering that it ends with a fourth wall break, but all movie wrote this in a review, Herschel Gordon Lewis's final feature is so crudely lensed and unrelentingly violent that it's tempting to believe the whole thing was made solely as a prank. And frankly, while that would normally sound like an insult with every other director, knowing what I know about Herschel Gordon Lewis, God rest his soul. I think he actually would be the kind of motherfucker to actually do something like that. He would be the kind of person to make a full length movie just to troll people. But again, if, (laughs) but that's just the kind of guy he was. And that's kind of the charm about watching his movies is that, you know, anyone that knows anything about him, you'd know that if you actually, if he actually managed to, like, get you to, like, throw up, like, those people that inspired John Waters, or if you're, like, the people in the UK that tried to ban this shit, you know, <laughs> he would just sort of burst out laughing, or he would just clasp his hands together and go, yes! 
he was the kind of guy that liked to rile people up. And frankly, while these movies are not really effective at all at being horror movies, you know, there was, you can thank him for creating some movies that are at least worth watching for the entertainment value and for the fact that they led to, you know, us having the, you know, later filmmakers having the freedom to be more explicit with violence and gore and it's in the cinema, whether or not you think that's a good thing or a bad thing overall, I don't know, but you know, you can thank and or blame him for a fair amount of that. But the camp factor is sort of kitschy set design and sort of campy acting is it's what keeps you involved in it. It's not, and even though there's a lot of space in between a lot of these gore effects, so it's not constant. It's not, again, it's not like watching the guinea pig films. It's not an endurance contest. You're kind of just in on the joke and along for the ride. You just feel Lewis's ghost just kind of, you know, nudging you with his elbow going, eh, eh. <laughs> but, you know, like I said, all of these are available on Tubi. Last I checked, if you don't mind putting up with the ads. And Arrow Video has each of these individually, and it has a box set along with a couple other movies, I'm pretty sure. So give that a watch. Give all of them a watch, honestly. They're all worth your time. Granted, like I said, a lot of them are below 80 minutes, so maybe worth your time is not actually a good <laughs> endorsement right? in retrospect. But tomorrow we're going to be talking about... Uh, one of my personal favorite subgenres when it's done right, folk horror. We're going to be talking about Midsummer, The Witch, along with a few other notable inclusions in the subgenre. So until then, stay safe, have a good night. I'm Sam. Bye bye.